This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome back, my friends. I'm Jeremy Myers, your teacher for the One Verse Podcast. Today, we're looking at Jonah 2-2. This is episode number 75, and I've titled it, Jonah Went to Hell. (laughs) You might believe you're going to see Jonah in heaven, and you will. But uh, today, we're going to see that Jonah went to hell, and we'll see what I mean by that. Now, when you think of hell, what is it you think of? Probably think of a place of burning, fire, right? Maybe some sort of torture chamber where demons squeal in glee while the people who are there scream in terror and agony. (laughs) Something along those lines. If you're like most people, that's probably what you think of when you think of hell. But did you know that such depictions of hell have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the Bible? Those ideas, those... Ideas of hell come from pagan beliefs, not from the Bible at all. And uh, when the Bible talks about hell, a uh, you know, or Hades or Sheol or Gehenna, a completely different picture emerges. We're going to talk a little bit about that today in Jonah 2.2, more of an introduction than anything else when we see that Jonah goes to hell. Uh, before we do that, though, you do know that I had a new book come out about two weeks ago. It's uh, called Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. There's about seven reviews so far on Amazon. If you've left a review, thank you very much. All five-star reviews so far. I did have one one one-star review for a little bit there, but uh, that got taken down just because it wasn't about the book at all. Thank you, Amazon, for that. If you want to uh, read this book, obviously you can get it on Amazon. In fact, that's the only place you can get it right now. But you can also start reading it for free. And it's a two-step process. First, you need a way to read Kindle books. If you have a Kindle Fire, that's great. You're set. If not, you can download their free Kindle reading app. It's absolutely free. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash kr. That'll take you to the right page to download the app. Uh, redeeminggod.com slash kr. You can install that on your computer, smartphone, whatever, tablet. Then sign up for a free month of Kindle Unlimited. Now, Kindle Unlimited is usually about $10 a month. But if you go to redeeminggod.com slash KU, that's for Kindle Unlimited, then um, you go to a page at Amazon where you can sign up for free for 30 days. Okay, now if you don't want to keep it, make sure you cancel after the 30 days. But anyway, once you do those two steps, just find my book on Amazon and it's available for the Kindle Unlimited. If you're in Kindle Unlimited, which now you will be, you can download the book, start reading it for free. So anyway, uh, those two links again, redeeminggod.com slash KR for the Kindle reading app, and then redeeminggod.com slash KU for the free 30-day trial to Kindle Unlimited. Got it? (laughs) Good. All right, let's uh, turn to our study of the book of Jonah as we look at Jonah 2.2. So Jonah 2.2 is in two parts. Uh, The first half of the verse is sort of an introduction to the prayer of Jonah. It's not not officially the prayer yet. Uh, I suppose you could call it the title summary of the prayer. And uh, the the actual prayer begins halfway through verse 2 and continues until the end of verse 9. Now, we know this because of the pronoun change in the middle of verse 2. The the first part of verse 2, Jonah is referring to God as he. And then in the second half of verse 2, um, 
Jonah is is actually in the prayer, and so now he's referring to God as you. All right, it's so sort of like uh, I suppose Jonah as he's writing this in the first part of verse two, it's like he's saying, "I cried out to God, and He answered me, and here is what I prayed." And then halfway through verse two, now the prayer begun begins. Right? Oh God, please help me. You, you know that sort of a thing. So so that's sort of how to understand uh, verse uh, verse two. And uh, it, it's important because uh, verse 2 is intended to invite you, invite me, invite the reader of this prayer to, to look for two things as we go through the prayer. First, Jonah says, here, here sort of the title, the first half, he says, I cried to God and he answered me. Okay, so this is the title summary of the prayer. And what we're supposed to do as we go through this prayer is look for those two things. We're supposed to look at what Jonah said uh, what Jonah asked of God, what, what what he cried out to God about. And then the second thing, we're supposed to look at how God answered, how God responded. All right. Uh, and just as a heads up on this second point, uh, how God responded, there's really only two places in this prayer where God responds to Jonah. All right. And the, the first is in verse six. And the second comes after the prayer is over, and that's in verse 10. So in verse 6, just sort of a heads up, a preview, God uh, delivers Jonah from drowning. So that is God answering. And then in verse 10, after Jonah's all done praying, God commands the fish to vomit Jonah up on dry ground. So uh, we'll see this when we get to verse 10. It's actually a very humorous ending to the prayer. I'm not trying to ruin the story for you, but uh, basically, verse 10 sort of shows that Jonah's prayer made both God and the fish <laughs> sick to their stomach. Uh, Jonah 2.10 is the punchline to the joke of Jonah's prayer. All right, and I think I mentioned that a little bit in the previous podcast episode. Uh, Jonah 2, it's a terrible prayer. And uh, the way the story is told reveals that it's a joke of a prayer more than anything else, especially sort of when we get to that punchline. There at the end. Now, having said that, I did have one of you, one of the listeners, uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember who it was, uh, email me this past week, and she said uh, that she had always understood Jonah's prayer to be teaching some pretty good theology. And, and I agree. I, I, I'm not trying to say everything about Jonah's prayer is wrong. She, she pointed out specifically, and if it's you, I'm sorry, I just don't remember who you were, your name off the top of my head right now. Um, and I don't have my email program open. I could go find it in a second or two, but I just forgot. So anyway, um, but anyway, she said, or you said, um, that Jonah does have faith in this prayer because he is talking about his belief in resurrection, which, which really wasn't a common belief in Jonah's day. And that's true. That's absolutely true. Jonah does show throughout his prayer his belief that he, he believes he's going to die during the prayer, but he also believes that he will worship God again. He will make sacrifices to God. He will fulfill his vows to God again in the holy temple of God, which we'll see in future podcast episodes. He's referring to to the heavenly temple, not the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so, uh, and that's true, all right? Uh, I I don't deny that at all. There is a lot of good theology in Jonah's prayer. However, having said that, I, I do think that God's response there in verse 10 to Jonah's prayer, it's sort of, you know what, it reminds me of uh, what the prophet Samuel said to King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, that obedience is better than sacrifice. 
Right? So throughout this prayer, yes, Jonah has some good theology, but uh, he, he prays about keeping his vows and, and making offerings and sacrifices to God, right? But through it all, he says nothing whatsoever about, God, I'm sorry I went the wrong way. You know, uh, I, I wish I had gone to Nineveh. If you let me out of here, I will be willing to go to Nineveh and do what you ask, to preach to the evil Ninevites. He never says anything about that, all right? But, but what does God want from Jonah? He doesn't want sacrifices. <laughs> he wants obedience, just like Samuel told King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. So uh, anyway, uh, that's, that's my take on, on the prayer of Jonah. And so as, as we go through the prayer of Jonah, look for those two things that Jonah introduces us to. What Jonah asked for, what Jonah says, and how God answers, uh, how God responds to Jonah's prayer. All right. And uh, by the way, notice as well here in verse 2, Jonah says that he cried out to Yahweh. <laughs> this is somewhat ironic because as we pointed out going all the way through chapter 1, so far in this story, everybody's been crying out to God except Jonah. <laughs> it's just really sort of funny here. Finally, Jonah decides to cry out to God, right? Uh, in chapter 1, first of all, the sailors cry out to their gods. Now, not Yahweh, but they're crying out to their gods. That's verse 5. Except then when Jonah says, yeah, by the way, my God, Yahweh, he's the one who created the wind, the waves, the land, the sea, everything on the earth. He owns and is in control of everything, Right? When they find out Yahweh's behind the storm, well, then they do cry out to him. That's verse 14. Um, then, uh, even the, the, the captain of the ship, when he finds Jonah sleeping down in the, in, uh, the belly of the boat, down there in the uh, cargo hold, he's, he begs Jonah, cry out to your gods, verse 6. <laughs> but Jonah refuses. All right? So, everybody on board is crying out to God, facing imminent death. But Jonah never says a word, at least in prayer to God. All right, but here, finally, verse 2, Jonah's saying, I cried out to God. <laughs> well, Jonah, no, you didn't, but now you are, but okay. So anyway, it's just sort of funny little note there. Uh, what does Jonah cry out? All right, well, now the actual prayer begins in the second half of verse 2. All right, and, and I'll probably point this out as we go along. But pretty much every statement in Jonah's prayer, uh, he is making an allusion, not illusion, uh, an allusion with an A, uh, to, to the book of Psalms. And so this first half of verse 2, he's alluding to Psalm 18 and Psalm 30. And uh, um, 18, Psalm 18, verses 4 through 6, and Psalm 33. Uh, I'll, I'll have those in the transcript, which you can download online if you're, if you're a member of RedeemingGod.com. But... Uh, in, in both of those psalms, the psalmist praises God for delivering him from his enemies. And basically, the psalmist in both of those psalms, Psalm 18 and Psalm 30, says, uh, I was innocent, God, and my enemies surrounded me. They were intent on destroying and killing me. But you, O oh God, you delivered me. So thank you. Okay. <laughs> so Jonah is alluding to both of those psalms here. He's referencing them. But, but, but do... Do, do the situations that the psalmists were in when they wrote those psalms, do they apply to Jonah? <laughs> Is it the same situation? Well, the, the psalmist was saying, I was innocent, but my enemies surrounded me and tried to kill me. Is that what was Jonah's deal? No, he was hardly innocent. He wasn't innocent. He was in rebellion, blatant rebellion against God. 
And it's not Jonah's enemies surrounding him in chapter 1. It's God. Unless <laughs> Jonah thinks God's his enemy, which I don't think so. All right. So anyway, Jonah's use of those psalms to describe his own situation, uh, it's not a proper use of scripture. All right. His situation is not the same situation that the psalmists were in when they wrote those psalms. So just something to note here in verse 2. Uh, Jonah goes on to say that he cried out from the belly of Sheol. Now, uh, the word belly here, if you have your Bibles open, you might notice that the, the word belly in many English translations is also used back in 2.1 to describe the belly of the fish. Um, so, so there's some question as to what belly... Oh, by the way, the words are not the same in Hebrew. So there's some question as to what belly Jonah's referring to, Right? I mean, he used the word belly in Hebrew uh, in, in two one to describe the belly of the fish, and now he's using as a, a different word for belly in two two, and he's calling it the belly of Sheol. All right, so there's a question: Is this just a, a synonym? You know, a, a, the word which means it's a different word which means the same thing, or is Jonah referring to some other sort of belly? And if and if so, what what other belly is he referring to? Well, in this case, it would be the belly of the sea. Uh, you know, the, the great, deep, chaotic waters, and uh, which he goes on to describe in verses 3 through 6, by the way. So, you know, it probably doesn't matter too much either way, uh, but I only bring it up because of that other word that Jonah uses here, the word Sheol. And that's a Hebrew word, by the way. I left it untranslated. Uh, Sheol is the Hebrew word, and, and um, so when I, I made my translation of Jonah, I left it untranslated because uh, if you have like a translation like the King James Version or something, um, Sheol often in English translations gets translated as hell. So some translations here in 2.1 says that Jonah cries out from the belly of hell. All right. Um, And uh, like the King James Version is a perfect example of that. And so this sort of raises the question that I I really want to sort of close out our time with today and focus on today. What is hell? Jonah says he is in the belly of Sheol, or the belly of hell, (laughs) If if we translate it the way some English translations do. And so lots of people look at this and say, well, did Jonah actually die? You know, what's going on here? Did, did he go to hell? What, what does this mean? And again, some people look to the New Testament where Jesus, you know, at least in the Apostles' Creed, we read that Jesus descended into hell. And what does that mean? Paul writes something similar in some of his letters, descended to the lower parts of the earth. Does that mean he went to hell? You know, where did Jesus go during the three graves, days in the grave, all those sorts of things? And so people look at this and say, well, there's a parallel here with Jonah. But, you know, all that aside from the fact, um, put, putting all that aside, if I were to ask you, what is hell? You'd probably describe some sort of place, you know, in the afterlife where sinners go, right? Uh, they suffer eternal torment and fire and brimstone. I sort of described some of this at the opening of the podcast. In some of the more gruesome depictions of hell, you have demons torturing people, like this big torture chamber for people who rebelled against God and died as unbelievers, something like that. Uh, and, and so that's, that's what many people, that's sort of the modern conception of hell that people have today. But you know what? That portrayal of hell 
It does not primarily come from the Bible. Uh, This idea of hell as a place where people suffer and scream and burn in fire for eternity, you know what, most of it has its roots in pagan mythology, not so much from the Bible. Yeah, there's a few places in the Bible that can be used to refer to this. You know, we have this lake of fire description in Revelation 19 and 20, lake of fire and brimstone. Uh, But the thing is, is the book of Revelation is full of hard-to-understand imagery, and most of it is not very literal. I mean, in the very context here of this lake of fire and brimstone, we read about a sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Is that literally, you know, a sword, this metal sword that, that, that is, you know, coming out of his mouth? No, nobody thinks that. They say, oh, well, this is a reference to the Word of God or something. This is a, Im- a symbol or image of the Word of God that proceeds from, from Jesus. And that's true. I think that that would be a correct interpretation of that image, right? But then we get to this description of the lake of fire. And, oh, no, this is literal. This has to be a burning lake of fire that God throws uh, Satan and the devil and his demons and all unbelievers into where they suffer and burn forever and ever. And I just wonder... Well, how come we can take this sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus as an image, a symbolic image, but not this lake of fire a few verses later? Anyway, it's a question to ask yourself. Some people look to Luke 16 with this uh, story about the rich man and Lazarus. You know this story. Rich man, Lazarus, um, they were living and then they both died. And Lazarus finds himself with Abraham and this rich man finds himself thirsting because of the flames and all of this, this whole description here. And people say, see, that's what hell is. Well, again, though, there's some questions here, because if this is hell, if this is where all unbelievers go after they die, uh, what is Abraham and Lazarus doing there? (laughs) They shouldn't, they don't belong there. And so then we get all these descriptions about how, well, uh, Abraham's, uh, this was a compartment called Abraham's bosom. It's a separate compartment in hell. And when Jesus descended, okay, he emptied that and took those people back to heaven with him. And we get into all these sort of fancy theological descriptions about what's going on here. And um, I just, I'm just not sure that that is the proper understanding of Jesus' story. And again, we're going to have to wait for detailed explanations for all of that for some future book or future podcast episode or maybe future lesson in a course. And then we get this whole description in Matthew, various places, Matthew 8, Matthew 22, Matthew 25, about uh, the outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And people often say, oh, this is hell. It's going to be so bad. They're just going to be weeping and crying and gnashing their teeth all the time because of their suffering and the torture. <laughs> But did you know, you go and look at those passages. I'm going to say something really challenging here to you. You go and look at those passages in their context. And then if you're able to, study those passages in their cultural context from the ancient Near East, the Mediterranean culture in the days of Jesus. And guess what? This outer darkness, this weeping and gnashing of teeth, is not describing hell at all. It's describing people who receive uh, sort of a negative judgment from Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, There's this wedding feast of the Lamb that is being described there, and people show up in the wrong clothes, and they get cast out. They don't get to take part in the party, in the wedding feast. And so they're out in the outer darkness, this, this place where the lights are not. 
There's no lights, no torches and all that going on. No singing and music and dancing and feasting. It's not describing hell. It's describing the judgment seat of Christ, which, by the way, is a place that only believers go. So really, this whole weeping and gnashing of teeth thing, it's a warning for believers, not for unbelievers. I know that's a challenging, maybe shocking statement. Um, I'm going to include a, a, a lesson on that in a future course. Right now, I'm teaching this course called the Gospel Dictionary. After that, I'm going to teach a course, at least I hope to, called uh, Tough Texts of the Gospel. And this whole thing in Unweeping and Gnashing of Teeth will definitely be one of the ones we look at. At least I'll try to. So anyway, look, we, we could go on and on, but there's we're seeing here that a lot of the imagery that people use from the New Testament to describe hell as this place of burning and fire and torture and suffering and sorrow and weeping and gnashing of teeth and all that, you know what? uh, Some of the best readings of those passages don't actually teach any such thing. At least, there's lots of possible objections to such a reading of those passages. Okay, and if we were to study all the fire imagery, for example, we'll get to this word, the word fire, in our Gospel Dictionary course, we'll be seeing most of the references to fire in the New Testament have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with hell. Okay, they're talking about refining, God's refining fire, or the fire of, it is a fire of judgment, but a, a, a judgment upon believers, not for unbelievers. All right, so anyway, I don't, I don't want to get into all that either, but uh, we'll be covering that in more detail under the word fire in the Gospel Dictionary. So anyway, look, the point for this, the point, point for today from, from Jonah chapter 2 is Jonah uses this word Sheol, all right, which some people think of as hell. And yet, here, even here in the context, as you look around at what Jonah's surroundings were, and I don't care whether you think he, he's describing Sheol as the belly of the fish that he's in, or as sort of the belly of the sea, the deep sea, as he goes on to describe the seaweed and the deep and the darkness and all of those sorts of things. Either way, there's no fire, there's no brimstone happening here at all. In fact, it's very, very opposite. It's quite wet and dank. Uh, you know, if Jonah's in the belly of the fish, uh, very wet and dark where he's at. There's not a whole lot, there's no fire at all. No brimstone, no burning, no torture, no suffering, no screaming, nothing like that. All right, so look, Jonah's description of Sheol here, it bears absolutely no resemblance to this fiery torture chamber for the sinful dead that many Christians have in mind when they think of hell. All right, and in fact, Jonah, yeah, he's a rebellious sinner, but according to the text, I don't think it ever, he, he never actually dies here. He's not describing himself as having died. He remains very much alive throughout the story. And, and there's no burning, all right? Instead, it's a watery place of chaos. So, so again, even here, with this Hebrew description of Sheol, here by Jonah, we, we need to rethink our view of what Sheol means. By the way, just you might be saying, well, what does it mean? Uh, in, in Hebrew thinking, it, it basically, the word sheol, it doesn't mean hell. I think hell is a bad translation. Probably a better translation would be grave or pit. Typically, when you do do a word study on the word sheol, I'm going to try to do this, by the way. Again, in the Gospel Dictionary, I do have an entry on hell. 
So we'll be talking about all these words there. We'll be talking about Sheol. We'll be talking about Gehenna uh, and Hades. All right, so we'll be talking about all those in the Gospel Dictionary as well. But uh, Sheol is typically pictured in Scripture as this gloomy, dark, damp hole. There's worms there. There's corruption, just like there is in any grave or any in any deep, dark pit in the dirt. All right? Um, and uh, here in the case of Jonah, it describes someone who's there even while he's alive. Uh, usually, though, Sheol describes the abode of the dead, the, 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 the place where dead people are, which is in a hole in the ground. All right? Uh, back then, there wasn't much of a conception of the afterlife for the righteous or the unrighteous. All right? The, the bottom line is there's almost nothing in the Old Testament that describes the experience of the dead from the perspective of the dead. The dead die, and we don't know what happens to them. That's basically the Old Testament view of, of death. So even here when Jonah 2.2, Jonah describes himself as being in the belly of Sheol. He's not saying he died and went to hell. He's saying he's in a place of corruption, decay, right? Of chaos. And that's true whether he's in the belly of the sea or the belly of the fish. Look, bottom line, sort of as, a, as I close out today, be very wary about saying anything definitive regarding the afterlife experience of the unregenerate dead people. Scripture just isn't very clear on this, and God has not seen fit to provide a definitive description in Scripture. And so I would warn you about trying to do that on your own. Yeah, Boy, I hope I didn't raise more questions for you than... Than anything else today, I probably did. Let me just try to clarify. Look, I'm not saying that hell or or a place of the unregenerate dead does not exist. All right, I'm not a universalist. I sometimes get accused of that because of some of what I teach, um, but I'm not a universalist. I do believe that unregenerate dead, that people who die without eternal life, who die without believing in Jesus for eternal life today that they will spend eternity separated from God. Okay, I do believe that. Hear me very clear. <laughs> I do. Um, but I, I don't think that that place that they live, separated from God, is going to be a place where they scream in horror and the flesh is melting and burning off their bodies and demons are cackling in glee as they torture them and put them on the rack and all sorts of other things, okay? I do not believe that the Bible teaches that the afterlife is that way for unregenerate people. And ultimately, you know what? Again, it goes back to, what is Jesus like? Can you imagine Jesus creating a place for people who didn't believe in him and him sending these people there for them to be tortured? Can you really imagine Jesus doing that? Hope your answer is no. Jesus does not treat people who didn't believe in him that way. He continues to love them and forgive them and extend grace and mercy to them. We see this all over the place in the Gospels. And if that's true of Jesus, then it's true of God as well. God is supremely nonviolent. He does not torture people. He doesn't torture people in this life, and he doesn't torture people after they die. God is not a divine torturer. I wrote some more about that in my books, uh, The Atonement of God, in my more recent book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Not about hell, but just about God being nonviolent. 
Like I know all this was his major huge tangent off of Jonah 2-2. Uh, but uh, I, I think, look, the original purpose of this verse, it wasn't to teach about hell. The real purpose was to invite us to look at what Jonah prays in this verse and how God responds. But I just wanted to teach a little bit about hell because I know it's a question you probably struggle with. In fact, I got a question from one of my readers is very weak about it. So, um, and I've got a lot of questions about it over the years. Eventually, I will write a book on it, hopefully. Um, but I hope that tiny bit I shared today was somewhat helpful. Just, hell isn't a place of torture because God doesn't torture. And the Bible doesn't teach that the afterlife or the unregenerate is going to be a place where they scream and suffer and are tortured for eternity. It doesn't teach that. Uh, And again, if you want to dive more into this study, uh, it will be something I cover in the Gospel Dictionary course, which is available for members of the Hope or Love Discipleship Levels. You can take it for free. And... um, We'll be covering that probably in the next couple months. It's uh, it, the, the groundwork, though, the, the, the basic premise, though, is to understand what God is like. And God is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. God does not torture human beings, either in this life or the next. He doesn't kill people. He doesn't command others to kill people. He is not violent. He is supremely not violent. Uh, to see if you know if you have questions about this again, I, I highly recommend you get my newest book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Uh, and again, you know it's 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 available for free through Kindle Unlimited for the next month or two. And uh, you can get the 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 Kindle reading app. Just go to redeeminggod.com/kr, and then you can get your thirty day free month trial to Kindle Unlimited. Go to redeeminggod.com/ku. That will allow you to start reading this book for free and see. That Jesus reveals God to us. And that just like Jesus, God is not violent at all. He doesn't torture people. Hell is not a divine torture chamber. Anyway, I don't know how long my book's going to be on Kindle Unlimited, so if you want to start reading it, take advantage of that now. And thank you so much for listening. Listen, if you have questions about some of what I taught about hell and Sheol today, just leave them in the show notes area of this podcast episode. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash Jonah22. All right? And uh, you can find it there. Leave a comment, leave a question, and I'll see if I can answer those. Anyway, uh, join me next week. We're going to continue to look at what Jonah prays as we go to Jonah chapter 2, verse 3. And in so doing, we are better going to learn how we ourselves can pray as well. Thanks for joining me today, and I look forward to seeing you next time in Jonah 2-3.